Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got results. The future of pharmaceutical and healthcare marketing, and I've got RJ Lewis on the line today. Hey RJ, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Bob. Now RJ, there's a bunch of other authors uh, that helped put this book together. Can you tell me just a little bit about each one? Sure. So myself and Scott Weintraub were kind of the idea originators for coming up with uh, the book. Um, Scott and I actually share a forum together in a group called EO Entrepreneurs Organization, um, which is a, a group of um, like-minded entrepreneurs who leverage each other's expertise and skills in co- sort of a informal advisory board capacity. Mm-hmm. Like a think and tank, or it's kind of like a think tank. Um, uh, I think of them as my um, unpaid, uh, unofficial advisory board, where I can run. <laughs> run business challenges by them and get their experience and, and, and vice versa. Great. Um, so one of the gentlemen in our, in our forum uh, is a fairly well-known author by the name of Mike McCallowitz. He's on, I think, his fourth book now. And uh, after one of the retreats that we had where we go away for a few days to work on ourselves and our businesses, um, Scott and I were sharing about a four-hour car ride back, and we were talking about how dramatically – the healthcare industry was changing. Um, we've both been in the space for 20 plus years, and it's kind of the most um, rapidly changing environment that we've both seen. And we were also talking a little bit about um, Mike and, and the books that he's come up with, and we said, you know, we could write a book. Um, now's a perfect time to do it to kind of address for the marketer what some of the challenges are that are out there and what some of the opportunities are. So Scott and I kind of originated the concept, and then we said, you know, if we're going to do a comprehensive job on this, we start to brainstorm some of the topics we'd want to cover from a forward-looking crystal ball perspective. What, what does the future hold? And some of the things that came up, we weren't resident experts in, um, including big data, um, which, is, which is being embraced by the healthcare industry quite a bit. And then the overall evolving systems of care, what's, what's happening um, with the Affordable Care Act and all of the repercussions of the ACA and how it's permeating throughout the industry. So we decided to bring in some other um, experts in those areas. In those areas, Brad Sittler um, is an expert in big data. Uh, he was with SAS uh, at the time, and, and Joanne McHugh and Roger Zan, um, and actually Stephen Morales is a third person on their team at Navigant Consulting. They, they did a chapter on the evolving systems of care and how moving towards an outcomes-based or results-driven world um, creates opportunities for marketers. Now, you know, it, it's interesting because there is so much going on in the world of marketing and communication these days. Um, why did you feel that this book was specifically uh, needed to come out for the pharmaceutical industry? Well, you know, not a lot is written for pharma. It's kind of an insular industry in many ways. Uh, most of what's out there um, on the market is either negative um, in that it kind of demonizes big pharma, um, or it's very textbook oriented, um, more for MBA programs. Um, And there's not a lot of um, kind of quick and easy light reading 
for the pharmaceutical marketer, um, other than kind of the general marketer books like Seth Godin and, and those types of things, but they're not very industry specific. Mm. So um, it was really just the the timing of everything that's happening. So you've got two. Um, we believe that the that the pharmaceutical industry is in the early stages of disruption. And you're seeing disruption happen across multiple industries over the last 15 years or so, really since the creation of, of, of the web. Um, other industries are, are really, um, you know, have been completely disrupted in some cases, like, like publishing and uh, travel, et cetera. We think we're in the early stages of that for pharma because there's two um, very specific forces, really three forces that are, that are happening right now, um, applying pressure to that disruption. One is digital itself um, and kind of the availability and accessibility of information and data, the proliferation of data through things like um, wearable devices, quantified self, the, motion, the, the notion that people are actually tracking a lot of their health care. Um, the second um, factor is regulation, so the ACA and the pushing of um, payment for healthcare services being tied more explicitly to outcomes. Um, and then the third big factor is consumerism overall, empowering the consumer. And you're seeing that, you know, some of that's being triggered by the other factors. Information is more accessible so consumers can be more engaged. Regulation is forcing payment uh, to happen differently, including larger burdens of share on the consumers in the form of co-pays, so consumers naturally take a more active role in healthcare. So those three factors are really changing the game, if you will, of healthcare or the business of healthcare quite a bit. Now, do you, you know, pharmaceutical companies, um, you mentioned that they have been demonized a little bit. Um, do you think they've kind of had an, uh, uh, an ostrich approach where it's, oh, we'll just keep our heads buried in the sand and it'll go away? And uh, because of social media, they're starting to slowly, painfully realize that like, maybe we better be a little bit more proactive about this and, and have some uh, counterpoints out there. You know, it's a great point because I think the perception for a lot of people is exactly that, that that they're kind of away in an ivory tower um, or putting their head in, their sand, in the sand, so to speak, and, and not really paying attention. But it's really a lot more complicated than that. It's, it's such a regulated industry. There are serious um, constraints on how pharma is actually allowed to engage with people. Um, what, one of the stories that we cover in the book actually is uh, a great story of something that Eli Lilly did. So um, for a, a long time, pharma has been criticized as kind of being absent from social media. And there's actually posts where patients are saying, hey, you know, why can't pharma jump in here and tell us about the drug? Um, and so what, what Lilly did, I thought it was very smart, is they used kind of old school tactics to identify influential bloggers in the categories where their um, drugs are relevant and they invited them to Lilly uh, corporate headquarters. And they had maybe 20, 25 bloggers uh, into the room, and they explained themselves. They said, hey, listen, we want to talk to you because we follow your blogs and we see a lot of the posts, and we really want to respond, but we really can't. And we want you to understand why we can't what the, and, and understand the regulatory environment that we live in. Um, and, they, and they spent a day with them kind of educating them on FDA and what the restrictions are on their engaging in a, in a dialogue like that, how when they do engage, they have to present information in a fair, balanced way, making sure risk profiles are there, et cetera, explained how television advertising works and why you hear so, many, um, so much of the fast-talking risk uh, information at the end of a TV commercial. And at the end of the environment, they really had um, 
built stronger bonds with with these bloggers. And the bloggers actually went back and said some very favorable things and tried um, to explain to their audiences that, hey, it's not that pharma doesn't want to be involved. They actually kind of have handcuffs on. Um, So a lot of that is starting to change. Um, FDA is starting to come out with more guidance around how pharma can interact. Um, But, you know, the handcuffs have maybe moved to, um, you know, uh, plastic ties, but they're still there. Uh, and it's going to take a little more time, I think, and a little more uh, changes to the regulatory environment before they're really going to be able to engage at a much deeper level. Yeah, I, I get the same thing with, with people that are in the financial industry. They're very heavily regulated. And, and if I reckon, well, you know, maybe you should do blog postings, I can't. I have to be very careful what I say, and everything has to be approved by the lawyers. So that, that basically cuts out the ability to, to respond in social media. Yes, um, the financial industry and the pharma industry have a lot of commonality in terms of in terms of regulation. Um, they're 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 both regulated for um, somewhat different reasons and, and in somewhat different ways. Um, so, in some level, I think digital marketing and, and social media is actually easier for um, the financial industry than it is for pharma. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, pharma is able to do some things in the form of promotion. Um, as long as it's as long as it's applying all of the various regulations that that uh, are necessary and adhering to them, I wanted to talk to you about the scope of what you're trying to get across in the book because really, I mean, for such a short book, there's a tremendous amount of information and it's a pretty broad spectrum that you're you're covering. I mean, literally, you could write the same length book for each one of the topics that you're covering. Um, now, I, I do realize that you're trying to, to, to give it a, a uh, pharma, uh, pharmaceutical and, and healthcare bent to it. So is it more of a primer to get people's head around what's, what's going on and then go back and, and read other books that are more specific about social media, how to use big data, or those type of things? Um, potentially, I think you could look at it as a, as a primer um, because you're, you're absolutely right. We could do entire books on each of the chapters and um, just for your audience in terms of the breakdown of chapters um, uh, Scott did the chapter on regional marketing which we think is a, a very uh, impactful future way to think about healthcare especially as you move towards an outcomes driven world because different markets react differently for different reasons whether it's socioeconomic demographic um, there are there are factors you need to understand about how um, different areas of the country are um, different even though the US is rather homogenous as a, as a country compared to, say, Europe, um, there are clearly factors um, within different areas of the country that make people respond differently um, to, to health care and, and disease, disease prevalence and, and everything else. Um, I did the chapter on digital marketing um, where it, that alone it could easily be a series of books. You can have a, a book. In fact, a friend of mine just came out with a, an entire book on social media within pharma. Um, you, you could have a book on uh, different aspects of digital marketing, but we tried to give kind of a comprehensive uh, overview of, of what we've accomplished and what's to come in the future in the way of digital marketing and where a lot of the investment and activity is happening. Um, and then um, Brad did the chapter on big data, as I mentioned, and Joanne and Roger and Stephen did the chapter on uh, uh, evolving systems of care. And then we actually summarized the, the book. Um, Scott and I did a series of interviews. We, we interviewed a couple of dozen pharmaceutical and device executives, and we did a chapter um, called A View from the Pharmaceutical Manufacturer's Perspective. 
and uh, summarize their thoughts. In fact, their thoughts kind of were um, influential throughout the book, but we, we did a lot of direct quotes and attributions to different executives in terms of how they see the world unfolding on these various topics. And that was quite interesting and, and quite challenging because in this regulatory environment, getting people to actually say things and being able to put it in print um, can be quite challenging at times. Um, so that was actually the, the longest aspect of the book is getting all of their direct quotes approved um, to, to, to get it into production. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, um, it is tricky for sure. Now, are you targeting specifically um, decision makers like CEO, um, C-suite level people, or is is it more uh, a homogenistic approach to any company that's uh, and at any level? We tried to keep the the book broad. In, in fact, we we um, considered when we were talking about the title and the scope of the book, um, we were initially going to call it the future of pharmaceutical marketing, and then we said, you know, it's broader than that. Let's Let's talk about healthcare marketing broadly because the lines are starting to come down between you know hospital marketing and pharmaceutical marketing. One of the positives of the ACA is is in theory it's supposed to get everybody on the same side of the table focused on the outcome. Um, so so the the marketing responsibilities, if you will, are 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 starting to um, overlap uh, quite a bit in terms of everybody's objective of making the the patient better. So we wanted to keep it, it broader, include healthcare. We are targeting, I would say, anybody from a brand manager on up within a pharmaceutical company, and I would love to have the C-suite read it because one of the complaints that we hear most common from um, digital marketing executives within pharma um, is that management hasn't necessarily bought into uh, what's possible yet. Um, so so um, I think the C-suite would certainly benefit um, from reading it, um, and, uh, and we, would, we would welcome and encourage that. But really, we're also looking at um, non-pharmaceutical companies as well. So all of the ancillary service companies, um, ad agencies, um, uh, CME providers, um, any, anybody that really touches and interacts with pharma and helps them to um, get message out either through education or um, through uh, branding. Well, as you mentioned earlier, that it you know the many many industries are in in a disruption mode, and one of the things that's happening in in um, the United States right now, there's a huge disruption happening with trying to get standardized healthcare for everybody. Uh, here in Canada, that's not an issue. So, do you think part of uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the healthcare uh, industry is to try and get people to understand the benefits of having universal, universal health care because in the long run it's going to help people or they're not even allowed to, to, to uh, be involved in, in that part of uh, the conversation? Um, I, don't, I don't think um, pharma has necessarily uh, carried that torch in terms of spreading that word. Um, and I think here within the U.S., there's still serious disagreement as to whether the the notion of universal health care um, makes sense. I mean, one of the challenges, I think, is it, is it, to some extent, it goes against our core DNA of a free market system. Um, I, think we're, I think we're already there. One of the points we make in the book is that we are, you know, it, people talk often about, hey, socialized medicine is coming. 
And one of the points we make in the book is that, hey, socialized medicine is already here. You know, whether you, whether you like it or not, the government pays about 60% of the tab um, today. So we are in socialized medicine here. Um, I don't think we really understand yet, and I think there's still a lot of concern by some as to what that really means, um, you know, how that's going to play out in the long run. Um, the world for a long time has kind of had a, a little bit of a free ride on the American healthcare system because when, when you look at where, um, and we'll talk about pharmaceutical companies first, but it's, it's really broader than that. It's lots of healthcare companies. It's device companies and, and even hospitals to an extent given all of the foreign patients that our best hospitals see. But the world's had a little bit of a free ride on the, on the healthcare um, side of things because America has been a free market and because America has charged a lot more for, or Americans have paid a lot more for consuming healthcare services, whether it's, whether it's pills or devices or other things, versus the rest of the world, which are more government-imposed price um, limits. And that's kind of worked for, for um, the rest of the world. It's going to be interesting to see as America moves further down this kind of socialized um, medicine path, what ultimately happens. You know, will we start to see um, longer wait periods, et cetera? One of the, one of the bigger crises that we're going to face in this country uh, over time is a reduction of physicians. You know, as, as you take the um, incentives, um, and I'll, I'll rely primarily on the financial incentives for just a moment, but there's a lot of other quality of life and other incentives as well, decision-making capability, et cetera. As you strip those things from physicians, um, you're, we're going to have, and we're already seeing it, a shortage of physicians in this country. Um, uh, I've got a personal story I can, I can share with you as, as well, if you'd like, about my sister who, who recently left medicine um, uh, for a whole host of reasons, most of which ultimately are driven through the regulatory changes that, that, that we're seeing today. But that, that issue, um, I think we haven't really felt yet. I think we're starting to feel it, um, as well as uh, the, the thing I'm most personally concerned about as you think forward is what happens to innovation because our, our culture here in a free market society has always been driven by investment seeking a good return on its capital. And as you take away the incentives um, to be able to um, charge um, fair market prices for a product or a service, I do question what will happen to the growth engines of, or the innovation engines of healthcare in the long term. Yeah, you know, what may happen is what's happened with the manufacturing um, side of the United States. It might all go offshore. And then suddenly, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, everybody's freaking out because they have to buy all their medicine from China. My my wife won't buy any consumable product from China, which is actually getting very hard not to do. Um, you know, in, in large part because they've they've just breached the ethical code on so many different levels at so many different times. Whether it's you know putting plastics into baby formulas or um, you know there's just so many examples of China um, producing less than quality material. Um, to to think about them taking over the whole supply cycle for the manufacturing of medicine is, is kind of a scary thought. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, how uh, marketers have been talking or, or um, educating doctors com because that's what happened in the past. You would go to see your doctor and the doctor said, well, try this because somebody came by or I 
been given a pamphlet about what this does and it sounds based on your symptoms, this may be something you want to try. Compared to today where somebody does a, a lot of online research and, you know, when you go see your doctor, a lot of times what they'll say is, well, try this particular product and don't look it up on the internet because you'll just freak out because you'll just hear about all these bad side effects and you don't understand or you don't have the breadth of knowledge to understand uh, what's going on. So the the it's kind of tricky who you're going to be communicating to. So is that something that um, marketers in pharmaceuticals and healthcare companies are um, aware of? And are they looking at new ways to uh, kind of get the doctor and the patient on the same side? Yeah, so um, they're... They're acutely aware of it. Um, There's some studies I've seen that um, actually list the Internet as the most trusted source for information for patients now. Um, uh, Some other ones I've seen still list the doctor um, first, maybe the pharmacist second, and and then the Internet. But it's generally, depending on the survey, it's generally in the top three in terms of trusted sources of information for healthcare right now. Um, In fact, the opening of our book talks a a bit about that, uh, the ability to research. Um, my, My wife lost a dear friend of hers. Uh, she was a bridesmaid in our wedding to cancer. And while on the phone with her, she was from the doctor's office. She was talking to my wife, telling um, telling her what she was just diagnosed with, the, 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 the stage of cancer she had. And my wife was literally Googling it at that time. And I think my wife understood the implications and the seriousness of it even before her friend did um, because she was you know, waiting for the doctor to come back and have a conversation with her. Um, whereas my wife was kind of reading it online in real time. Um, so yes, the pharma companies are, are aware of uh, that, and that, that's kind of what, part of what I mean by the consumerization of healthcare. So one of the big trends and the shifts that we're seeing is physicians used to be the clear customer of pharmaceutical companies, um, and that's who they went to because the physician had the power of the pen and could write the prescription. It's kind of an odd purchase um, when you think about it because you have to um, – you have to get a physician to write your product. Without that, your product's not going to sell. You have to get a consumer who needs your product and who also wants to get that product and, and fill their end of the bargain, which is to take that prescription, go to the pharmacy, and then actually take the product. And it's all separated. Neither of those two people who are the most impacted are, are actually um, the ones who pay for the product. You have to get a, a payer, uh, generally an insurance company or, or the government or or uh, uh, other form of payer, and there's many now, um, but you have to get a payer to actually agree to pay for the product. Um, so all of those, you've got multiple constituents and multiple customers. We actually did an interactive poll at a pharma lunch recently, and we asked folks, um, who's your most important customer today? Um, and we listed payer, uh, physician, uh, patient, um, uh, government, large employer. And the top three, um, at least today, it came out uh, physician, uh, patient, and then payer. And then we said, okay, imagine uh, it's, uh, I think we did three years down the road, and it wasn't even five. You know, imagine it's three years down the road. Answer this same question today, how you think you'll answer at that time. And physician fell from number one to number three. It became payer, patient, and then physician. So one of the big shifts we're seeing is that the physician is losing importance in the um, eyes of the marketer. It's not to say that they're still not important, but they're recognizing 
that it's the patient who often does the research ahead of time and walks into the doctor's office saying, hey, this is what I think I have, and I've done some research, and this is the drug I think I need. And doctors now, in part, their compensation is tied towards patient satisfaction. So doctors increasingly, as long as it's not a bad medical decision they're making, increasingly they're saying, okay. You know, I mean, they, they, they want to do the diagnosis themselves, confirm, um, but if it's a coin flip between two medicines and the patient prefers one over the other, they're generally going to give the patient what they want. Um, not not just because they're asking, but also because if you give the patient what they want, they're more likely to actually take it. Um, uh, so so there's a compliance and a, and a persistency issue at play there as well. Uh, but yeah, I think I think pharma's recognizing the consumerism of healthcare, um, and and things are changing a bit. Um, and and I say doctors are less important in large part because of the ramifications of the ACA as they trickle down to the provider level. Um, doctors are being disempowered, and it's one of the reasons that we're losing doctors. It's not an exciting um, career anymore. You're, you're basically being told to, you know, follow step A, then B, then C, um, and there's not a lot of problem solving and thinking and the things that drive people into medicine to begin with. They're kind of being handed a, a playbook and said, no, you have to do it exactly this way. It's almost like the franchisation of their their job without them uh, understanding why that happened. Yeah, IBM Watson is is now you know being programmed to do differential diagnosis. They're 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 having a lot of success with you know uh, at least uh, on the supercomputer level um, with trying to replicate a physician's kind of thinking and diagnostic process. Um, it, it's not one of those careers you can look at and say, oh, this is easily going to be automated. It's going to take a long time, I think, but but slowly but surely, especially, you know, add in the other trend of um, EMRs, electronic medical records, which uh, every institution's uh, adopting now and they're, and they're forced to adopt because there's financial penalties if they don't. Um, add in EMRs and you've really got kind of a really frustrating experience on the provider side in terms of being a physician. Yeah, and then there's pressure, uh, you know, to go paperless, and um, the new technology, and 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 then the software, which is incredibly expensive. But almost, if you don't have it, you're not going to be in business. So I wanted to ask you: um, Do you think uh, the industry was much simpler back, you know, 20 years ago when there was less people on the market and there was less choice, um, but people weren't getting as good healthcare? Or were they getting good enough health care? Uh, and then these days, it's over complex. And because there's so much choice and there's so many people on the market, it's becoming harder to uh, get better health care. You know, um, simpler, simpler, yes. Um, pro- and I think you could probably say that of almost any market. Um, you know, I think, I think the world's growing in complexity. Um, but uh, I... You know the quality of healthcare. You know, p- putting putting the innovations and the evolutions of of medicines and and uh, techniques aside for a moment. Um, you know, assuming we had today exactly the same tools at our disposal 20 years ago, I think we're actually going in the other direction on quality of healthcare, and and we have to. You know, the the problem that the ACA was intended to to solve, if you will, is kind of the the ballooning cost of healthcare um, on society. And the only way you're really going to solve that, when you, when you analyze healthcare spending, the vast majority of healthcare spending is done in the first year of life and the last year of life. 
all the people in the middle, um, they consume health care, but it's not at the same extent as, you know, the, the newborn babies and the, and the people who are um, on their deathbeds. We're not really going to ever stop trying to save newborn babies. So that, that's really not going to be impacted uh, dramatically. Where we're going to have to make some tough decisions is, you know, do you give an 86-year-old a hip replacement? Um, you know, and, and those types of things, I, I think the quality of our health care longer term under a socialized system is, is probably going to go down. Um, because we're just not going to be doing, you know, some people would call them unnecessary treatments. Um, but, you know, if you're the 86-year-old who needs a hip, you don't necessarily think it's unnecessary. Uh, but, but the question comes out, who's going who's gonna to pay for that? Um, so I, I think that all things being equal, the quality of our health care is actually going down. That said, that's not the real world because all things aren't equal. We're way ahead of where we were 20 years ago in the quality of medicines, the quality of procedures, the quality of devices. So healthcare is better and, and it's continuing to get better. The real question is where we'll be, be 20 years from now if the spigot to investment starts to get turned off because you can't get the same kind of returns out of healthcare investments. You know, how much innovation will we do between now and 20 years from now if the investment dollars aren't funding it? Okay, that's an amazing start to the, to the show to, to give you some idea of what the complexity of what's going on um, in the world of healthcare. So now that we understand that, how does the healthcare marketer um, approach the market? Uh, do they have to completely reinvent the way they're marketing, or is it more the introduction of the new uh, tools that are available, social media, um, the ability to use big data to actually track and find it if you're, you've got a, a functional headline, so basically what we're talking about is A-B testing, um, and things like that. Is it more of an educational role to get people up to speed, or is it more the implementation of more sophisticated uh, targeted marketing. The way healthcare marketing used to be, and I'll, I'll, I'll go specifically to pharmaceutical marketing. Um, the way the way it used to be, um, you mentioned a, a simpler world. It used to be very easy because you you didn't get a prescription unless you went to a doctor and you got a signature on a on a script for a doctor, and that still is is largely the case. Although large increasing numbers of people can write prescriptions, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, etc. But Generally, what pharma would do is they would have larger and larger and larger sales forces that went out and they called on doctors and they educated the doctor or uh, they called it a detail. They detailed the doctor on the specifics of their drug, why it was better than the competitor, um, mechanism of action, efficacy, side effects, etc. And, and, they, and they educated the doctor. And doctors even today say that pharmaceutical reps are a great source of education for them, um, particularly when it's a new compound that they're not familiar with. Um, they, they value the feedback that they can get from the manufacturer. So the way it used to work was quite simple in that you just sent armies of reps out to doctors' offices and you told them about it, and then as the doctor saw patients, they, they wrote your product. Um, the way it's happening today, um, about 50% of doctors now no longer will see reps. Um, so uh, over the last 10 years or so, a lot of consolidation has happened at the provider level. There's not as many small two- and three-person practices out there anymore. They keep getting bought up by the surrounding hospitals. And that's happening for a whole host of reasons. One is, you know, doctors were put in this position where they wanted to get into practice just to see patients and do medicine. They, they suddenly 
became business people running their own practices and the business side of it, how to get paid by a insurance company, et cetera, really started to consume and take over their lives. So doctors wanted a simpler way. Hey, I don't want to deal with any of the administrative stuff. Just let me see patients. That's what I want to do. And in hospitals, when you look at the cost per treating a patient, it's far more costly to treat a patient in a hospital than it is to treat them in a satellite um, office. So hospitals also, in an effort to A, increase their footprint and be able to negotiate with payers better, and B, um, be able to push people out of the hospital and say, hey, this is a minor procedure. You don't need to come to the hospital for this. You can go to our satellite office over here because they know they're going to have a greater success rate and it's going to be cheaper to, to, to um, service that patient. So hospitals have become bigger. There's fewer independent physicians out there. Um, and the hospital policies in many cases are we don't want to see any reps. And they do that for a, a host of reasons. But the biggest one is the cost driver. We, we don't want them to spend time doing that when they could be seeing patients. Because that's the other thing. The demand on the doctor is getting greater and greater. They, they need to see more patients every day for shorter intervals of time to essentially keep their billings up, if you will. Um, so, so what's happening, um, to go back to the original question of, of what is expected of pharma now, how do you engage in this kind of environment? A couple things. One, we, we talked about a little bit already, which is the consumer is becoming increasingly important as, a, um, uh, as a, somebody to market to and educate on your product. Um, the second thing, though, that's happening is marketing itself and social media is a great example of this, by the way. Marketing itself is really morphing into much more of a customer service role, um, meaning we're expected now to really understand um, our customer a lot better, whether it's a patient or, or a physician, and we're supposed to be able to almost instantaneously and on demand respond to their needs and what they, what they want. Um, so a good marketer starts to, I think, wear a customer service hat and really starts to understand in a segmented way um, where a patient is on the life cycle. Are they newly diagnosed? Have they been living with this condition for years? You know, where, where are they exactly? And what is it that they need? How can I be of service to them? What type of information should I present to them right now? Um, and the same goes for the physician side. Is, is this physician a, a high writer of my product already? already? Um, are they brand new um, to the category? They haven't written any before. Um, where do I need to start my educational process with this person based on where they are in the life cycle spectrum? How do I service this customer better as opposed to marketing? So I think we're moving from a uh, you know, holding the bullhorn and just yelling at the masses marketing, which is what we've historically done, more towards a one-on-one, -on -one, personalized, how can I be of service to you marketing. So that begs the question, if the doctor has less and less time to spend with patients, they have also less and less time to spend with marketing. So they kind of have to deal with marketing on a totally different level. Absolutely. But but they do have time, and that's part of the pivot, right? They do have time to be serviced as a customer. So the the time the doctor does want to hear from the company is when they have a question. You know, if, if they say, hey, you know, um, I'm about to write this drug, and I don't know uh, if it interacts with this other one. You know, if, if pharma can be there at that time to educate on that, specific topic, not to hit them over the head with 50 other marketing messages, but to answer their question 
um, then they're acting less as a marketer and more as a customer service agent, and they're being helpful. Mm, a resource. A resource, exactly. Yeah, that's it's you know it's interesting because you know uh, sometimes when I go to my doctor, he'll he'll prescribe something, and then he'll say as I'm leaving, oh by the way, ask the pharmacist <laughs> if this is going to work because he's not sure, and then I'll go to the pharmacist. So the pharmacist becomes my secondary source of information. And a lot of times they'll look at it and say, meh, and they'll call up the doctor and say, no, we recommend this, and the doctor will say, okay, and the prescription is changed over the phone. Yeah, the, the pharmacist is becoming an increasingly important player as well because in many cases they have the holistic view of you as a patient. You, you might be seeing two or three different specialists for different conditions, and they don't necessarily know what the other one has prescribed. So you go to your pharmacy and you get all your prescriptions filled at the same pharmacy or pharmacy chain and they say, oh, wait a minute, you know, you can't take this with your other medication. It, it, there's interaction. Um, so a lot of times the pharmacist is, is a very valuable player in, in, the, in the environment um, for, for that reason. Additionally, the, the pharmacist is a tool that the payer uses. A lot of those phone calls where they change it, it's not necessarily an interaction. It might be that your particular uh, managed care plan, uh, well, in your case, you're in Canada, but, but here it may be that the patient's uh, managed care plan or insurance plan doesn't have an agreement with that company, that, that pharmaceutical company, and, and so therefore the, their product's not on their formulary. They're going to substitute something else instead. Yeah, from going from brand name to generic is another thing that happens too. It could be from brand to generic. It could be brand from brand to another brand. It could be um, something all else entirely. I mean, two different companies will have two different formularies based on what they were negotiating with the company. So, so the two patients identical could, except for different insurance plans, could walk in, have the same exact interaction, same visit, go talk to the pharmacist, and end up on two different drugs. Both could be branded. You know, like everything in life, uh, if you don't know anything, it seems simple. And as soon as you start digging in, you start realizing this is more complex. And the more you know, the less you know. Yes. Yeah. Healthcare is a very complicated system. And that's, that's one of the problems with that. I mean, it's a unique system in that just the, the, the notion of separating out who pays for the item, it's, it's, I think it's one of the greatest challenges of healthcare too, and why I think this consumerization ultimately is a good thing because people feel ownership, a little bit more ownership when they're writing a check for something. Um, and when they have to dig into their pocket to pay for it, they, they want to investigate and research and understand more. Um, I'll, I'll give you a classic um, example. Years ago, before I was married, I, I had a roommate. And um, my roommate was on an allergy uh, medication, uh, uh, Claritin, uh, uh, Claritin-X, I think, it was, uh, Claritin at the time. And uh, Claritin went from being a prescription uh, brand to a generic brand. And so um, I said, hey, this is, we saw a TV commercial. I said, I said uh, this is terrific for you. You know, it's, it's generic now. It's going to be a lot cheaper. And she said, no, it's going to be a lot more expensive because my copay um, right now is only $5. And now my insurance won't cover it all. I have to go buy it off the shelf and it's $14. And I said, yeah, but you're missing the actual cost <laughs> because the $5 is your copay. It was probably $150 paid by the insurance company or your employer or, or whomever was ultimately paying that tab. Um, but for her, out of her pocket, it was $10 more. And that's true, but nobody else was paying at that point. So it, as a cost to society, it was a lot cheaper. But um, in her mind, because it, 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 
it had to come out of her pocket. It was a lot more expensive. Yeah, well, that's the human nature, isn't it? It's only painful if it's about you. Yeah. 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 Um, let's talk a little bit about the changing demographic and, and uh, our lifespan. Has that fundamentally changed the way people market these days as well? Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, we're, we're all living a lot longer. Health care... And, and in particular, the job of a physician, when you think about it, is quite an interesting, has quite an interesting mission. Um, if, if physicians excelled at their job and did everything exceedingly well, and you could even say the healthcare industry generally, if it excelled and did everything exceedingly well, we would eradicate all disease and there would be no more need for that profession. Um, it, it's, it's one of those rare professions where you're actually striving to put yourself out of business in the long run. Um, and, and you can say that same theme about a lot of the medical societies and associations. You know, one of the societies we work with, the American Diabetes Association, you know, it's, it's their mission to eliminate diabetes from the planet. And when you think about it, that if, if they're successful in that, they put themselves out of a job. But it would be the best thing that they could do because that, that's their mission. Um, so we're all getting better at living longer, um, but but we still die. And, and the longer we live, the more conditions um, that will eventually creep up. I, I sat in a conference one time with the former CEO of Pfizer giving a lecture. Um, it was to a group of MBA students who were probably all in their mid-30s. And he said, hey, I've got you know good news and bad news for you. The good news is everybody in this room, your chances of living to 78 is exceptionally high. The bad news is by the time you get there, most of you will have either cancer or Alzheimer's. Um, and, and that's true. I mean, the older, the older we're, the longer we're able to sustain life, um, the more disease we will have. And, and that, those are, I alluded to this before, those are the areas where we're actually going to have the biggest decision-making, you know, the, the old doctor as God kind of argument. We have to make really tough decisions about the the. 80-somethings, and how much do we spend on someone um, to uh, extend life even further? Um, because we're, we're really good at it. And that, that, that is part of the reason that our health care cost is so expensive, is we're so good at extending life. Um, but sometimes, you know, you have to weigh that against the quality of the life that you get. Yeah, and the, the, uh, the suffering of the patient. Yeah, the suffering. I mean, nursing homes, I don't know if you ever spent any time in, in them, but they're very depressing places. You know, people refer to them as God's waiting room. And, and when you go through, I mean, there, there are a lot of people in a nursing home that are, you know, pseudo catatonic, you know, they're, they're, they're just not any reasonable person would say they are not having a good quality of life. Um, but we're capable of extending their life. And it's, it's such a hard decision for family members to, you know, not want to extend someone's life, especially someone near and dear to them. Um, it, it, but these are the kinds of decisions that we're all going to have to make um, uh, as, as time goes on. Atul Gawande wrote a great book um, called Being Mortal. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage it. Um, it it's about these kind. He's a physician. He, he's an uh, uh, Indian physician, uh, lives and practices in the United States. He's a surgeon. Um, and uh, uh, he writes a story on a very personal level as a doctor, how he learned to kind of cope with these situations, and, and one of the core stories he tells through it is dealing with his own father um, as his father aged. 
um, and he talks a lot about kind of the, the, the dignity. You know, you really have to understand from a person, and it's really at an individual level, it's, it's person by person, what constitutes a quality of life for you? You know, at what point do you view your life not being of high quality anymore? You know, for some it might be if I can't play piano anymore. Um, for some it might be if I can't dress myself, if I can't feed myself. You know, what are the limits that we each have in our own mind as to what what's what's a quality life versus what is no longer quality? Yeah, well, and then you're getting into the whole debate of uh, can people have assisted suicide? Is that morally just? And if somebody's in incredible pain and, and, and they're suffering, why can't they have the right to say, I don't want to suffer anymore? And the doctor is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because for their whole existence, it's about taking care of people and not letting them die. So how can they say, um, well, you, you're not allowed. You have to suffer for three, four, five years, and it's going to cost you three or $400,000 to suffer. I mean, it's such an unfair situation. So it's almost like you need a new body of doctors that are part morticians and part doctors and they they deal with death on a day-to-day basis and and people can come in and they can apply and and do their thing but that's a whole new topic we could talk for hours on we we really need things like living wills to be more um uh normal uh, as a, as a course of you know so many people end up in a in a in a situation without having any kind of uh, do not resuscitate order or um, power of attorney assigned. And so we end up in this, in this, you know, catch 22 where you can't really let them go, even though that might be the best thing to do ethically and, and, and emotionally and everything. Um, but, but you're right. Those are, those are tough conversations and doctors have less and less time to have those conversations today because they're being asked to see more and more patients. Um, before we go, for you, what was your aha moment? You know, you, you because you were putting this book together and you had lots of people putting insight. What was something that really struck you as like, wow, now I totally get that? Um, you know, I, I don't know if it, it came from the the book or or not. Um, although I, I had several, I think, aha moments in the interviews I had with the pharma execs. It was really interesting to to hear their perspective on a lot of things and um, you know relay some of those perspectives among among each other and, and kind of hear their, it was kind of almost like a story being told uh, as it unfolded, the more interviews I had. Uh, one of the aha moments for me, and, and I think it started as a conversation around the book, but I alluded to a story about my sister um, before, and this is probably a good time to tell because I think it sums up a lot of the things that we that we talked about here. So my sister um, was a practicing oncologist in the Philadelphia area. She, she um, uh, was at uh, Fox Chase. She was at Cooper uh, most recently at Jefferson, um, all very prestigious oncology uh, organizations, and she practiced for 20 years uh, down in the Philadelphia area. And just recently, only about four months ago, um, she left medicine. Um, uh, she's about 50, and um, she went to Novartis. She now works at Novartis on the – still does phase one clinical trials, which is what she was doing, but now she's responsible for actually designing them from the manufacturer perspective. Um, whereas before she was actually enrolling patients and treating patients and, and such. But when you talk to her about, you know, well, why did you leave medicine? I mean, she, you couldn't have somebody that was more passionate about getting into medicine when she did. And she, she's dedicated and she, she's published and she's, you know, respected in the community. Um, but when you talk to her about, you know, what's changed, um, she, she highlights a number of things. You know, one she gets less and less time with patients because she's being asked to see more patients um, uh, in order in, in the interest of dollars and cents of running the hospital. 
Um, to uh, the EMRs and the forced use of EMRs, she she saw late stage cancer patients. Her her typical patient might only have four months to live because uh, she was kind of the clinical trial. So they had tried, they had exhausted the other options. They were trying essentially experimental drugs that weren't proven yet, um, and and you know, it was kind of a last hope kind of thing. Um, but she needed to have these kinds of conversations, conversations like. Do you have loved ones that are far away that might be able to come and see you over the next month or two? Um, do you have a will in place? Do you have a living will? Um, those are the kinds of conversations she needs to have at the end of life. Um, but instead, she's forced to use an EMR where she can't get to page two to fill out like a, a medication she might need for somebody until she completes page one, which asks questions like, do you wear your seatbelt? Do you smoke? Um, all logical questions when you think about it in terms of a general context for society, but they don't particularly fit her patient population. Um, you know, in, in her view, uh, while she doesn't like smoking, it's not going to make a difference in this person's life. They've got four years to, or four months to live at best. You know, if they enjoy a cigar, let them have a cigar because it's more about quality at this point. Um, you know, do you wear a seatbelt? If the answer is no, she had to pull out a patient brochure on seatbelts and the importance of wearing seatbelts. The odds of this person dying from a car accident are dramatically lower than the odds of them dying from their disease. Um, so those types of frustrations um, just continued to mount. Um, th things like paycheck deductions. Um, she had to get her patient records in within 24 hours of seeing a patient, and if they weren't entered into the system, they actually started to take micropayments out of her paycheck every time she missed a patient record. Now, she had no time to do patient records. Her, her habit had been to do them all on Saturdays because they gave her no time to do them throughout her day. Um, but she was expected to kind of magically now make these things appear while at the simultaneously taking on more patients. Um, so all those kinds of frustrations building up over time are kind of the unintended consequences of what we're seeing by regulation. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see kind of how that plays out because I'm seeing that same kind of story get repeated in, in many instances where physicians are leaving. Um, they're not, our greatest source of physicians for a long time, or a great source, I shouldn't say our greatest, were the kids of physicians. If your dad or your mom was a physician, it was very common to go into medicine. But for years now, physicians have been encouraging their kids to do anything but. They don't want them to follow them into medicine because it's not what it used to be. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how we, how we grapple with a physician shortage and, and potentially a shortage on innovation. We've been chatting with R.J. Lewis, his book, Results, The Future of Pharmaceutical and Healthcare Marketing, a fascinating chat and an even more fascinating book. Even if you're not in the industry, I'd recommend you check it out. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Bob. It was great. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.